You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. I want to say a good morning to you, all of you again. We are nearing the end of Acts, and before Pastor Curtis uh, arrives, we're going to be able to complete uh, the book of Acts. And right now we're going through Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 22, verse 29. Now we just came back from something called the Youth Summer Missions Project. And we go to the Youth Summer Missions Project almost every year. Sometimes we miss it if I'm not able to go or if we can't find a leader. But we always do two very important things in the Youth Summer Missions Project. We train everyone to be able to give their testimony, and we teach everyone to make sure that if they find people on the reservation, since we go to the Apache Reservation, that go to church, we always ask them, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior sometime in your past? Was there a moment where you actually committed or surrendered your life to Christ? Because we find that those two methods are very effective in helping people to become Christians. First of all, when it comes to their testimony, you can go to the first slide, uh, Michelle. When it comes to their testimony, they can actually hear a story and they keep attention and listen and then reflect upon themselves to see whether they have had that story as well. And also, they can hear, well, wait a minute, I've been going to church for a long time, but maybe I'm just a fan of Jesus, but I'm actually not a follower of Jesus yet. And asking them that question, have you ever at one moment accepted Christ or surrendered or committed your life to Christ as your Lord and Savior, challenges them. Because a lot of them haven't. They've been going to church all their life but yet they've never been born again. And when we go through Acts, at where we're at right now, we see both of these items in action in our current Acts passage. Now, as I read through Acts, there's going to be some cross-references, and I was wanting to know if I can have two volunteers who have their Bibles or their smartphone Bibles, and can you volunteer to read Acts 21, verse 10 and 11, and Acts 21, verse 39? So can I have one volunteer... Volunteer for Acts 21, 10 to 11. I just need, okay, Rick, okay, when I get to that, or when I tell you to stand up and read, just go ahead and read that. Acts 21, verses 10 to 11. And one more person, volunteer for Acts 21, verse 39. Okay, Nicole, Acts 21, verse 39. We'll just go through the scripture reading, and also I'll make comments to understand the background and also the historic context so that you can understand more of what's going on here in the story of Acts to this point. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 27. When the seventh day were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the Jerusalem temple. Now, if you remember last week when Paul Moomjean preached, he talked about how Paul was being criticized because people were saying, He's now all for the Gentiles, and he's, and he's now saying that we should discard the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, that you don't need to be Jewish anymore, and that you should just focus on being a Christian with disregard for all of the law. And that wasn't true, because what Paul preached was that you can still perform the observances of the law as you see in the Old Testament if you want to, but you don't have to, because now Christ has given us a new covenant that doesn't require you to go through becoming a Jew first before you become a Christian. But if you want to do that, for example, if you want to get circumcised, that's fine. 
if you want to still follow the kosher laws and have a limit to what you eat in your diet, that's fine. But if you don't want to, that's okay too. But there were people who saw that and criticized Paul um, and lied about how he's and slandering how about how he's just telling everyone you don't have to be Jewish anymore, you don't have to respect the Old Testament law, just become a Christian, and that's it. And of course, that wasn't true. But to show that that wasn't true, the apostles of Jerusalem told Paul, why don't you do this? Go through a seven-day religious cleansing ceremony that all the Jews would understand is in observance of the law to show everyone that you still respect the Old Testament law. And so he does that. So we now come to verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the Jerusalem temple. Now why do you think Luke writes some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the Jerusalem temple? Now if you think back to the last ten chapters, Paul's missionary journey mainly was in the area of Asia Minor and Greece. When this says Asia, it doesn't mean China or Japan. It means what is modernly known as Turkey. And so he started establishing churches all over modern-day Turkey. Okay, but in the past, it was called Asia Minor. North of Asia Minor, west of Asia Minor, east Asia Minor, south of Asia Minor. The town that he's from, Tarsus, is southeast of Asia Minor, and also in Greece. And so, so many people were becoming Christians that even people who didn't want to become a Christian used the name of Jesus still in their exorcism services. And so, we have a story of the seven sons of Sceva. There are seven people who went around and cast out demons using the name of Jesus, even though they didn't believe in Jesus themselves, because it was working, because the name of Jesus was more powerful than any other prayer that they were using whatever name that they were using, they were using the name of Jesus because it was working, even though they were not Christians themselves. And so Christianity had become a massively widespread. Churches were being planted in the province of Asia Minor and also Greece. And then you have Jews who come back to Jerusalem to pay homage to the temple and to do their, their yearly duty of having to go back to Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple. And these people that may have even seen Paul before doing evangelism, not like it, may have even tried to persecute Paul in the certain towns that they were from in Asia Minor, saw him now here in Jerusalem at the heart of Judaism and, by the way, of Christianity, and they're shocked. And this is what happens. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, which is true. In the past 10 chapters, he was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they saw that as a teaching against their people and their law. And it's ironic because he just finishes seven days of trying to show that he has respect for the Old Testament law. They don't see that. They just see it's Paul. He's the one that's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, which obviously is not true. And let's go get him, right? And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. So there's a lot of slander going on here. There's a lot of assumptions. Assumption number one. Paul is teaching against the law and 
and against our people, against our, even our race. Well, he's not. He's actually teaching a fulfillment of the law, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who has filled, fulfilled all of the law. Assumption number two, he's brought in an Ephesian into a Gentile, into the temple courts, which was punishable by death. It was a big no-no. That was desecration of the temple, blasphemy, but really he didn't. They just assumed that he did because they saw him with someone who was not a Jew, and they just assumed that he brought him into the outer temple courts. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Now, I think that all of us, if we've been paying attention, we realize that when Jesus said, if they crucified me, they will also crucify you, is true. This is the exact same thing that happened at the end of every gospel. This is the exact same thing that happened to Peter. Now this is the exact same thing that's happening to Paul. Peter and Paul and others who follow in the footsteps of Jesus when they go back to the temple are being tried by the temple courts and they are right now being pronounced guilty. Now in order for you to see uh, a visual of what's going on, since a lot of us are visual learners, you see this chart of Herod's temple. And it's called Herod's temple because King Herod the Great was the one who helped rebuild a lot of the ancient artifacts and a lot of the ancient uh, buildings of Israel that was decimated by different kingdoms in order to help, in a political move, them to respect him as their king. And so this is now Herod's temple. This is the temple that was around during the time of Jesus and the apostles. And you see, I've circled two of those areas with the green circle. Those are the uh, court of the Gentiles. So in there, those areas, those large areas, it was okay for you to bring uh, non-Jews there. But if you bring them into the actual temple, you know those buildings, looks like Legos, right? Those buildings, that if you actually bring them in there, which Paul was at, uh, there were actually signs there that said, do not bring Gentiles in here um, or else uh, we will kill you. We can stone you. And so they assumed that they brought Trophimus in there. And then if you look at where I have the arrow, that is where they took him out, dragged him out, seized him, dragged him out, and then they closed the gates behind him. And then we'll see that at the Antonia Fortress, which is where they had a, a detachment of Roman soldiers who were there to keep order since Jerusalem was part of the uh, Roman-occupied, uh, or uh, the Roman Empire, which occupied Israel. Uh, that's where they had all of the uh, soldiers there in order to quell any disturbances that would happen because they would happen once in a while in the city of Jerusalem. So verse 31, continuing, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. And in this verse, we see the prophecy given by what I jokingly said was the inventor of the abacus, the prophet Agabus, last week, um, being fulfilled. Uh, Rick, can you read chapter 21, verses 10 to 11 out loud?
All right, thank you, Rick. And so uh, the commander ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done, fulfilling the prophecy that Agabus had given him days earlier. Verse 34, some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Now, isn't it interesting how calm Paul is? I mean, if this was what was happening to you, you'd be like, okay, save me, hurry up, get me out of here, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. But Paul, as we know, if you've started with this journey in Acts chapter 9 all the way until now, he is not a foreigner to this type of mad crowd behavior. This is probably the 12th time he's had to deal with a group of people who hated him, who had come rushing towards him to try to kill him. So he's, he's used to this. He understands this is probably what's going to happen. And he even said, back to the Ephesian elders one or two chapters ago, that he was willing to come to Jerusalem and even die there for Christ. So he was ready for this. He was at peace with this. He knew that he would probably die, and so he was ready. And so he just says, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? The commander replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? And what the commander is referring to are a group of uh, Egyptians who would commonly, every 10 years, come and try to start an uprising because they hate the, the Romans and they hate being occupied by Roman forces. Um, and this was one example of, of that. Verse 39, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Now take note of this, because we're going to see near the end of this section of Acts that this comes into play, this important fact that he's from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen to now to my defense. And so he uses this crazy, mad, chaotic opportunity to tr- share his testimony and to share the gospel. Now, you'll see here, this is where Tarsus was um, on the top right side. If you go to the next slide. And over there, where it says Galatia, that is basically the province of Asia Minor, where everyone was becoming a Christian. Churches were planted and started all over the place there. And also, Paul and his past three missionary journeys also went to the areas of Philippi, Thessalonica, and also Corinth, planted churches there too. And so you can see that a lot of the Jews in Jerusalem felt very threatened by Paul because if they were not Christians, they felt that Paul was supplanting um, all of... Uh, that area with Christianity, and they were losing their power as um, people who were leaders of Judaism. Rome is all the way to the top left, and now they're at Jerusalem here. Now, one interesting thing is, one of the things that were noteworthy about Tarsus is the fact that it was a free city of Rome. There were many free cities of Rome back then, Well, maybe I should say there were a few free cities of Rome back then compared to all the other cities that were part of the Roman Empire. But one of the the great privileges of being born 
in a free city of the Roman Empire is the fact that you would have immediate Roman citizenship. No other city could confer you that, but if you were born in a free city, it was as if you were born in Rome itself. You wouldn't have to give taxes to Rome. You can have a Roman citizenship without having to work really hard for it. For example, be a Roman uh, soldier for 25 years or pay an exorbitant amount of money in order to maintain or get a Roman citizenship. Now let's continue on with chapter 22, verse 2. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Some of your Bible translations might say Hebrew, well, because Aramaic is a dialect of uh, the Hebrew language. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. Now that's significant because Gamaliel was someone that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees respected. That um, when there is an argument, sometimes Gamaliel would come to both the Pharisees and the Sadducees to stop the argument and to give advice. He was sort of like the, the Yoda figure of the Pharisees and the Sadducees at that time. And Paul was trained under Gamaliel. So this gives him great authority. And was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, which was the name of Christianity back then, the followers of the way, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And now he gives his account of what we have already read Luke give his account in Acts chapter 9. So Luke gives his narrative account in Acts chapter 9, and now here in Acts chapter 22, Paul gives his version of how he came to know Christ, how he was converted to being a Christian. Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, which was is his other name, uh, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light has, had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of Christians wonder, when did Saul ever become a Christian? Because we see in every other place, to become a Christian, you confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then after a time, or immediately, then you get baptized. But when you read Acts chapter 9, all you see is him getting baptized, but it doesn't seem like he ever confesses Christ as Lord. And so some people say, oh, well, when Saul says, Lord, who are you? That's when he became a Christian. 
Or they would say, well, it's assumed that he came a, became a Christian when he got baptized because you're not going to get baptized unless you actually believe in Jesus, right? Well, over here we see the answer that before he was baptized, Ananias encouraged him to call on the name of Jesus in order for his sins to be washed away and to be baptized. And so we see clearly here that even when God calls you to do his ministry, he expects you to also believe in Jesus rather than just go and do uh, the ministry for him. And so this is where he became a Christian. He called on the name of Jesus, got baptized. That is when he was saved. So even Paul himself converted to Christ by saying, Lord Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. I now follow you. And he gets baptized. Verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking quick. He said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And you can read that story in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And we find out that one of the reasons why God sends them, Paul, far far away to the Gentiles is because too many of the Jews uh, knew who he was. And so he sent them to the Gentiles in order so that they can hear the gospel too. Verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. I don't know about you, but I always laugh whenever I I hear this. I mean, this is a sad thing, okay? Paul is now being persecuted and and his life is threatened. But when's the last time you just shared a simple story of what happened to your life? And then the response is this. Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. I mean, wow, to be able to judge someone not fit to live just because he shared a a nice story is is pretty over the top, right? But back then, there was something that was happening. God was now opening the door of his kingdom to people who were not Jewish, the enemies of the Jews, Romans, Greeks, Babylonians, Assyrians, people who had persecuted and killed and tortured the Jewish nation before. And now God is opening the door to whoever would believe in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is literally the thing that he said before. Michelle, if you could turn back. What was the last verse? Verse 21, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then verse 22, The crowd listened to Paul until he says this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, You are not fit to live. We shall rid the earth of you. Right? And they couldn't grasp that the, the fact that now God was opening the door of the gospel, of his message to non-Jews, so much so that they hated that and they wanted to kill Paul. And this is why when you read through the New Testament, when you go through the epistles, why does Paul spend so, many, so much time on sharing that God has given me the answer to this mystery? And the mystery is this, that now even the Gentiles can be saved. Why does he spend so much time to the churches that he's established, who, which, who mainly were Jewish, who, Jewish people who had converted to Christ, that now even the Gentiles 
have, a, have the same equal share into the new covenant as we Jewish people do? Well, it's for that very fact that most of the churches were Jewish, and even they couldn't get their minds around the fact that now the gospel has been open to also the non-Jews so that they can become Christians. And so we should thank God for this because think about us. Are most of us Jewish by ancestry? No. But because of the fact that God loved all of the world so much and that whoever would believe in him through his son Jesus Christ, we can be saved. Jewish people as well as people who are from Chinese or from Caucasian uh, descent. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Don't take it too personally, you guys. We want to say the commander was evil. He wanted to flog. Um, and, and after flogging, after torturing Paul, question him. Back then, the Romans had a saying that the only way you can tell the truth was if you torture the person. And if they say the same thing after they get tortured as they did before, they're telling the truth. Because who would want to say the same thing if it really wasn't true? Because they would have to suffer possibly more torture. Okay? And then Paul does a really cool trick. It's not a trick because it's totally legal and because it's based on the truth. And he goes, he, sa- he does this, verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been, been found, who hasn't even been found guilty? Now often, I've wondered in the past when I've read through this, what, is citizenship that important? You know, most of us here, if we're not resident aliens, we're American citizens. And to me, when I became an American citizen, all I thought was, well, I get to you know, do jury duty. Like, that, that doesn't seem like an advantage. Or I get to vote, but does my vote even count, you know? And it, it doesn't seem like quite an advantage. But back then, being a Roman citizen truly did confer to you advantages. And here are the advantages. Um, I've starred or X'd the areas which relate to what Paul was going through. But if you're a Roman citizen, you had social, financial, political, and legal advantages. So, for example, you had... First of all, the right to wear the toga. Now, that is why you should want to become a Roman citizen. You now have the right to wear a toga. I mean, we always wanted to wear a toga, but you got to be a Roman citizen first to wear the toga. For us, the toga it, um, represents, you know, Greek sororities and fraternities, right? Or, 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 or that's just the way Romans wore things. But actually, you had to be an aristocrat or someone who was an official of the government or someone who was a leader in the Roman government in order to wear the toga. It was a status symbol. So, you, so Paul had the right to wear the toga. Okay? But look here, you have the right to pass citizenship to children. Um, financial, you're exempted from taxes to Rome. Isn't that awesome? Would you like to be exempted from April 15th? Right? There were political rights. Look at this, the right to audience before Roman governors and officials in the provinces. And we know that that's what Paul actually does. He says, I appeal to Caesar, right? And then legal rights. Exemption from death or punishment without due process of trial and appeal process. What the commander was doing is he didn't even have a trial yet. There was no appeal. There was no trial before a judge. He was just going to go and punish him and torture him to get information. 
So what, what the commander was doing was wrong. Right to trial before a Roman magistrate, right to, of appeal for judgment to the emperor, exemption from physical abuse in interrogation. And the list goes on and on. Now here's, I'm going to read this and you're going to see why um, the end of this section is so significant and why there's, there's so much surprise in the commander's um, eyes. Well, to obtain Roman citizenship, you had to be either born in Rome, born in a free city of the empire, which Tarsus was, or born of a Roman citizen. And then that Roman citizen can then confer citizenship to their children. Or you can spend 25 years in the Roman military. And if you survive and you've served well, then you can be an automatic Roman citizen. Now, isn't that crazy? I mean, back then, your lifespan wasn't that great. So basically, in order to become a Roman citizen, if you weren't one yet, you'd have to spend pretty much almost one-third to one-half of your life in the military, survive all the wars you'd have to go through, be honorably discharged, and then you can finally have Roman citizenship. And so if a person ever said, well, I purchased my Roman citizenship, not because I was born a Roman citizen or in a Roman free state or in Rome, um, not because I served the military for 25 years, they must have purchased their citizenship with an exorbitant amount of money. No one knows, no scholar or historian knows how much money specifically it costs in order to get a Roman citizenship by buying it. But it must have been an exorbitant amount because think of it this way, you'd have to serve 25 years in the military in order to get your uh, Roman citizenship, which means that you probably have to be a very rich person to be able to buy, a very rich non-Roman person to have to buy your citizenship into the Roman Empire. And so as we continue reading, this makes more sense. In verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. So this commander was probably a really rich guy. Paul replied, but I was born as a citizen. And Nicole, can you read verse 39 of chapter 21? Okay, so he was a citizen of no mean city, right? There are cities around them, they were very angry and mean, but his city was not mean. No, what mean means is no average, no ordinary uh, city. Um, It was a free Roman city, so he had the rights of a Roman uh, citizen. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains, right? So hope you understand more of, uh, as we're going through Acts, Acts chapter 21, and all the way through 22, verse 29. Now, what is this part of Acts teaching us here today? Well, I think one very important thing that it definitely teaches us is whether you're in a good situation or whether you're in a bad situation like Paul, use your salvation testimony, your faith story, the story of how you became a Christian to evangelize. We see him doing this from 2139 all the way to 2221. Now, of course, he shared the gospel through his story, and 
it didn't really convince everyone because what it convinced everyone to do instead was to kill him. But he used this method over and over again. And he will continue to use this method when he appeals to Caesar and he goes to Festus, Felix, and Agrippa. And he shares this story again two times about how Christ changed his life. Paul uses how Christ met him and changed him as a way of sharing to those around him the gospel. And you can easily do this also with your friends and with your coworkers. All you got to do is just start with this. Do you want to hear my Christian story or something like that? All right. Now, the reason why I share this is because a lot of times we feel that it is hard to share the gospel because how do you get an inroad? How do you build that bridge to be able to share the gospel propositionally? Well, you know what? God created the world, but then sin came into it, and then we needed a savior. Like, how does that naturally fit into an, our everyday conversations? Unless one of our non-Christian friends or coworkers come to us and say, tell me about your Christianity. Then you'll be able to do that, right? Well, an easier way of sharing the gospel is just share how Jesus Christ changed, changed your life. That's much easier because we always talk about that, that thing which is important to us. And it's very easy to say, can I share with you something that really changed my life? You know, it'll only take five minutes and you'll just share it, okay? Sharing your salvation testimony is simple. Just answer these three questions. Write it down first, then memorize it. First of all, question one, what was your life like before you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? And this includes those of you who are raised in church. Because a lot of times... A lot of people who are raised in a religious home or in a Christian background will say, I have nothing to share about number one. Yes, you do. You have a lot to share about number one. You know why? Because Paul was a number one. He was raised in a Jewish family in his whole entire life before he met the Messiah. And he had a lot to share about that. Remember, just because you were born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. And just because you're raised in a Christian family until year 61, when you finally placed your faith in Christ, from zero to 61, you weren't a Christian yet until 61. And you can share about that. What are the different things that you learned at church? Why didn't you make a commitment to Christ as, as your Lord and Savior for 60 years of your life? And until 61, you finally did. That's a lot that you can, you can share. Then you answer the second question. How did you come to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And this is where you can weave the biblical gospel because you must have heard about sin somewhere and you must have agreed that you were a sinner and you must have heard about the cross and how Jesus Christ came to pay for your sin and you must have heard somewhere that you need to believe in what Jesus did for you and ask him to be the, the Savior and Lord of your life to be a Christian. Somewhere that happened, and you can share that. You can share the gospel through your story. And then last but not least, answer the third question, what has your life been life like ever since trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I always encourage you to keep it within five minutes so that you can make it a conversation, because you can always expound and add more details to that basic five-minute um, faith story testimony. Now, the advantage of evangelism this way is this. It captures people's attention more than just a straight presentation of the gospel because it's in story form. It's hard to argue with because it actually happened to you. Right? It's easy to argue when you say, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then immediately, your friend will say, which God? Or, I don't believe in God. 
Why, why would God cause all this? If God exists, why would he cause all of the suffering and evil on earth? And then you can't go further because you have to now bring up and marshal arguments for the existence of a good God, right? But when you share your testimony, you, you bypass all of that because you're sharing your personal story. Um, and it doesn't sound as sales pitchy because you're, again, sharing a personal story. You're not um, telling them a sales pitch and using the gospel as uh, the medium of that sales pitch. So I think what we learn from this part of Acts is a salvation testimony. Sharing your faith story is really powerful, and that's something that we should definitely do um, in our evangelism. Second of all, if you haven't yet, make a personal decision to commit your life to Christ in order to become a Christian, especially if you were raised in a Christian environment, or you'll never be sure. Remember Acts chapter twenty-two, sixteen. 16? Ananias tells this to Paul, who had already gotten the call to go into the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his, Jesus Christ's, name. And if Paul, who was raised a very devout religious Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he calls himself, who knew everything about the Old Testament, still had to believe and make a personal decision to follow Jesus, then so should we. And I really want to emphasize this, because the danger Paul had was that he can go, well, I've already been trained, and now God called me, and so I'm just going to go. No, he still had to believe in Jesus. If we could go to the next slide. And the same thing for us. The danger that we have in church today is most of us were raised Christian. And so we know all the stories of Jesus. But just because you were raised a Christian doesn't mean that you are immediately a Christian. Some of us inherited our faith because our parents passed it down to us, informationally speaking. Some of us, even if our parents weren't Christian, they sent us to Christian. To, to church ever since we were kids and we learned the faith through osmosis. We heard it all the time. We heard all the Bible stories. We heard how it's important to follow Jesus. But just because we learn all this information about Jesus, whether through inheritance or osmosis, that doesn't make us Christians. Just as Paul, learning everything about the future Messiah does not make him saved, he had to have a point where he actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah who died on the cross for their sins. And so I see this a lot because in baptism classes, what's funny is sometimes the most Christian-ish people, the ones that go to church the most, having gone to church the most, are the ones that are most confused about this because they can't figure out a certain time and point in their life where they actually trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They know all the facts. They know that we're all sinners. They know that we all need a savior, but they cannot tell me whether they've actually placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the savior of their sins and as the Lord of their life. And that is when I say, okay, then you need to do that because I'm not going to baptize you until you do. You've just shared with me that you have all the head knowledge, but you have not been born again yet. Remember the story of Nicodemus? He knew it all, but Jesus still said, you're not entering in the kingdom of heaven until you become born of not just the water from your mother's womb, but born of the Spirit from God 
above, right? And so you need to, just like Paul, you need to call on the name of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You need to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. There has to be a point in your life where you believed in Christ. And if there is no point in your life, I ask you, make that point today where you had an event where you realized that you were a sinner and you needed Jesus to be the Savior of your, of your sins, Savior from your sins, and the Lord of your life. That no longer are you going to live your life your way, but you're going to live it God's way, and you need Jesus to help you to do that. You know, a lot of people, when they get to college, they did a survey, and there's some surveys that say 70% of Christians, when they go to college, fall away. Now, I don't believe that 70% of Christians, when they go to college, fall away. First of all, because I know better. I've been here for 10 years. I've been ministering as a youth pastor in other churches for another 10 years. And pretty much, I would say, maybe about 20% of people who I would say are actually real Christians stumble in their faith in college. They fall away. And I have data to prove it because I have a whole row of a roster of Christians that I look at now on their Facebook profile or I call them up just to hang out and I know that whether they've fallen from their faith or not, just 20%. Still, 20% is 20% too much. But the reason why sometimes it's 50% or 70% is because they were never Christian in the first place. The surveys will say, did you go to church? Would you consider yourself a Christian? But it never asked them whether they truly placed a faith commitment in Christ personally in their heart when they were in high school, junior high, or um, elementary school. So I implore you, when Jesus said in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, did you make that commitment, that belief in him? Or do you just know the verse and go, yeah, that's a great verse. You know, I believe about the verse, but have you believed in Jesus yet? And today you can do that. Somewhere in your Christian upbringing, you must have understood the gospel and have made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus. If this didn't happen yet, even if you have been in the church for over 60 years, you're not a real Christian yet. Make your decision today, okay? Remember, being a Christian isn't a race, right? I don't mean like running, okay? I mean an ethnicity. So you can't inherit your Christianity from your parents, you have to make a personal decision. You can look like a Christian. You can act like a Christian. You can even talk like a Christian. You can even know how to pray. But are you really a Christian? Right? And if you look at Paul, he acted like a Christian. He can talk like a Christian. He can quote all the scriptures because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But was he a Christian yet? Nope. Until he made a commitment to Christ, then that's when he became a Christian. Some final thoughts. Who are you going to share your salvation testimony with this month? Think about a person that you can share your salvation testimony with this month. And you've got to do the homework, answer those three questions. Maybe one or two paragraphs each. And then once you do that, memorize it. Five minutes, boom. Share it and see what happens. Okay? And then you can say, and when the pastor or someone says, when's the last time you've ever shared the gospel with someone? Come on, you can go, yep, I did. And then you don't have to feel bad about you haven't shared the gospel yet with someone. If you haven't yet, do you want to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? And, of course, I'm also talking about those of you who 
did not grow up in church, but I primarily focus on those who did grow up in church because I know most of you are the ones who grew up in church. The ones who didn't grow up in church don't have to answer this question because they know when they became a Christian. They were living a life outside of church, living a life their own way, and then they were invited to a church or someone from church who was a Christian came to them and shared the gospel, and they know when they committed their life to Christ. It's those of us who grew up in church who are confused about this. Well, we're, we're going we're to solve that confusion today. I'm going to give you a chance to believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Let's close with prayer. And for those of you who are confused about your salvation, who believe all of these things that have been preached so many times in your life, but yet have not made a decision to surrender your life to Christ, please pray with me. You don't have to pray out loud, but you can pray in your heart um, and make your decision to follow Christ. Let's pray.